Hi, this is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I run through my current, the current version of my Sunday sermon. Those of you who live in Sacramento know that the Sacramento Kings are good again. They were good when I got here in the late 90s, early aughts, and then they were bad again for a very long time, and they're good again. And one of the things that they've added to their repertoire beyond the Golden One Arena, where they play instead of the Sleep Train Arena that was up in the, this is a downtown arena. And when they win, they light the beam. And if they're winning towards the end of the game, the chant goes up, light the beam, light the beam. And a player comes and hits the button. And this laser beam shoots up from Golden One Arena all the way up to the sky. And you can see it all over town. We live a number of miles from downtown and and we can see it up in the sky you can see it just driving into the city this beam of light that goes from golden one arena up into the heavens now i was having lunch with a, a pastor friend of mine and he basically he was the one who told me about it first i hadn't heard about it he's the one who told me about it he said basically it's like you know have you ever could you ever imagine anything less religious than that and it is. It's deeply symbolic. That beam connects heaven and earth. And when the kings win, they connect heaven and earth. And it makes me think of the pillar of, of fire by day, the pillar of smoke by day, and the pillar of fire by night that guided the Israelites through the desert. And, and whenever that pillar moved, they moved and they followed it all over the desert. And that pillar connected heaven and earth. I don't need the headphones on. I'm not playing anything right now. There's something, now most people in Sacramento won't think about this, but something deep inside them, when it happens, they the king's winning connects heaven and earth. It's, that's why athletes pray for wins and such. Now, the ancient technology for this wasn't altars, or wasn't laser beams, it was altars. Altars connect heaven and earth. Um, God reigns over the earth from the heavens, ancient peoples, the gods, and heaven reigns over earth. Quite literally, look at the language of reigns, reigns, two words, senses of rain. And the book of Exodus calls God a consuming fire. And when you look in Leviticus, when they, when they inaugurate the tabernacle, uh, two of Aaron's sons are killed because they bring strange fire to light the altar. And no, God lights the altar himself. God is that consuming fire. And when you look at the symbolism of a sacrifice, you take this animal substitute. Well, a lot of people are like, well, where does that substitute? Well, you can see it in the story of, of Abraham and Isaac and the animal substitutes for Isaac. And when the head of the family brings a sacrifice to the tabernacle or the temple, they place their hand on it, sort of transmitting the sin from the family to the animal. And the animal goes, the, the animal now laden with the sin, you can also see that in the scapegoat, the animal laden with the sin goes to into the fire and is consumed by the fire. It's a, God is a consuming fire. And then that animal that goes into the consuming fire is sort of translated up the cloud all the way up into the heavens. Every time someone does a sacrifice, in that sense, they, they light the beam. And altars, and the altars are ubiquitous throughout, throughout the world. And in many cultures, they did practice human sacrifice. The children of Israel did not practice human sacrifice. It was against the 
religion given them by God, but these animals were in the way. The, whenever you had to dedicate someone, you brought a sacrifice, and that animal is the substitute for the dedication of, of the person. The animal dies so that the person can live. Now, Israel's mission was to connect heaven and earth. And Israel, all the people of the earth, were going to get connected to Israel, and Israel could connect heaven and earth. And, and, and then the calamity of the fall, the calamity that we see all around us in the world, that would be undone. Because when you start the story, the man and the woman live in the garden with God, and then the man and the woman are exiled from the garden, and they're no longer living with God. And the goal is that we would live with God again. You can see that in the book of Revelation. It's creation, with creation restored, a holy God living in the midst of his people. As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, quoting Andrew Clavin, Israel is the theater for God's relationship with his people. And the tabernacle and the temple is the location of God's dwelling with his people. This is the nexus point. is the place where heaven and earth get connected. And that's what the whole story is about. And of course, the tabernacle is movable. And once they're settled in the land, eventually Jerusalem becomes the place. And the temple is built in Jerusalem. And the temple connects Israel to God. And then, you know, that's the way that the, the chain worked and was supposed to work. The, the, the temple was crucial in understanding God's relationship with his people. So when the book of Jeremiah, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jeremiah a bit, and the people are like, God would never allow anyone to conquer Jerusalem because this is the nexus point. It's way too sensitive for God to do this. And don't play chicken with God. The temple was God's embassy upon the earth, connecting earth to the ruling courtroom of heaven, which made the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians the severed connection between God and his people, the collapse of the project that God had begun taking them out of Egypt and bringing them to the desert. The loss of the temple is feared to be the loss of the connection between heaven and earth. And this is why during the exilic prophets like Ezekiel, there's envisioned a new temple. Why? Because that's how the connection gets restored. And Ezekiel is in such a surprise to see God in sort of his movable throne with the cherubim over Egypt. And the message was, well, that God can go anywhere. God isn't limited just to this, these places where we put him in. But how could atonement be made without a tabernacle? How could atonement be made without the altars, without the temple, without the, the beam that connects heaven and earth? Would there be a way to begin again? Well, the, the temple the temple would have to be rebuilt. And so after the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians, everyone's looking for the temple to be rebuilt. And God will work through that. Well, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, said. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a tavern, a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Now, Cyrus was actually building temples all over his conquered realm because, you know, stay in the favor of the gods. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locale 
locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock and freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Cyrus wants to get this thing operational again. And so people begin to leave, just a remnant, just a few people. Most people stay scattered throughout the Persian Empire. It had been the Babylonian Empire and will become other empires. But a remnant come down and they're going to restart the beam. They're going to restart this connection between heaven and earth. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem, and had placed them in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, um, the prince of Judah. And here they listed the items. Um, Sheshbazar brought all these items along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. And then they have a list in Ezra 2 of a bunch of the people that went. Ezra 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled down in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the Lord, the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it. So, well, they didn't have the temple, but the altar is the important thing. The altar where that God said, well, all of these things should happen. So let's rebuild the altar to light the beam and get the connection again between heaven and earth. In accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fears of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, through the, um, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not been laid. Now, it actually takes a long time before they really begin to build the temple, like 18 years, and it takes them another five years to complete the temple. When the builders laid the foundations of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestment and with the trumpets, and the Levites, son of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, his love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the formal temple, the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. Now, it doesn't go into here in the text why. We do know, and we'll see that a little later on, that a little later on that, um, my wife asked me a question on the thing, a little later on that the temple was smaller. 
No one could distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. It's a, it's a super interesting moment. Now, obviously, those who wept, there was joy in their tears, because now suddenly the connection could be remade. But it wasn't like the old days, and it wouldn't be like the old days. There were these prophecies that when Israel would come back, they would all come back and everything would be great and Israel would be lifted up. And implicitly what that connection meant was that Israel would be the most important city in the world. Not the kingdom of Persia, not the capital of Persia, not Rome, not New York City, not, not any of these things, but not London, not Paris, not any of the most important cities in the world, but Instead, Jerusalem would be the most important city in the world because the connection between heaven and earth would be made there. And they came back, just a remnant, just a handful, and they continued to have, have conflict with the people around them because, of course, these people came back. People had settled in. They had taken the land, and now there's tension, and who's in charge? And you can read about that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and some of, and some of the prophetic books. There's, there's all this drama going on, and, and they're waiting. Why, why doesn't this meet expectation? Why doesn't this—it it isn't working. Now, it's—, it's the Lord moved Cyrus, and that's a wonderful thing. He pays for Cyrus and Darius, put the temple up, they pay for it. But is it really the same when it's done by Cyrus for the reasons that he did it? And I mean, how, 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 sh why should this be Cyrus? The vision of the Lord ruling the earth through her king, through Israel's king, is a bit truncated by the fact that. Well, it's Cyrus to it, and Cyrus has, has said many wonderful things about Cyrus. Has said in the book of, in the book of Isaiah, but Cyrus is hardly, you know, the kind of thing that we expect from the book of Deuteronomy. You know, temples can manipulate as well as facilitate. There would be another temple builder who would come along, and his name would be Herod the Great. Now Herod, in the 18th year of his reign, and after the acts already mentioned, undertook a great work, that is, to build himself the temple, build of himself the temple of God, and make it larger in compass, and raise it to a most magnificent altitude, as esteemed to be the most glorious of all of his actions, as it really was to bring it to perfection, and that this would be sufficient for an everlasting memorial to him. Now, for Josephus, who wrote this, Josephus understands full well what Herod is up to. But, but Herod is going to make a speech because everybody's, actually, the people are a little nervous because they're like, he's going to tear this down to rebuild it. But is it going to, he's going to have enough money to finish the job? And is he going to destroy the temple in the process? But as he knew the multitude were not ready nor willing to assist him in so vast a design, he thought to prepare them first by making a speech to them, and then set about the work itself. So he called them together and spake to them thus, I think I need to speak to you, my countrymen, about such other works as I have done since I came to my kingdom. Now, relations between Herod and many of the people were not so good. Of course, Herod was appointed by Rome. And, um, you know, there's the story that when Herod knew he was on the deathbed, he filled the, uh, he filled a space full of the, 
the religious leaders of the people and told his servants that the moment that he dies, they should slaughter these. So at least they'll be mourning in the country because he was afraid that, truth be told, when he died, everybody would cheer. So that's how popular he was and who put him in power. So although I may say that um, although I may say they have been performed in such a manner as to bring more security to you than glory to myself, for I have neither been negligent in the most difficult times about what tend, tended to ease your necessities, nor have the buildings I have made been so proper to preserve me as yourselves from injury. And I imagine that, with God's assistance, I have advanced the nation of the Jews to a degree of happiness which they have never had before. In other words, I've been the best king you've ever had. Everything I've done has been for you. All those palaces that I live in, they're all for you. Our fathers indeed, when they returned from Babylon, built the temple to God Almighty. Yet it does, um, yet it does want 60 cubits of its largeness and altitude. For so much did that first temple which Solomon built exceed this temple. Nor let anyone condemn our fathers for their negligence or want of piety herein. For it was not their fault that the temple was no higher. For, there were, um, for they were Cyrus and Darius, son of Histops, who determined the measure of its rebuilding. And it has been by reason of the subjection of those fathers of ours to them and to their posterity and after them, the Macedonians, that they had not the opportunity to follow the original model of this pious edifice, nor could raise it to its ancient altitude. But since I am now by God's will your governor and have been and have had peace a long time and have gained great riches and large revenues, and that is the principle of it all, I am at amity um i am at amity with and well regarded by the romans who if i may say so are the rulers of the whole world now right there you have the tension well aren't god's chosen people supposed to be rulers of the whole world not the Romans, not the Persians. Yeah, it's nice to blame it on the Persians that they didn't send enough money to build it tall enough. I will do my endeavor to correct that imperfection which hath arisen from the necessity of our affairs and the slavery we have been um, under formerly and to have a thankful return after the most pious manner to God for what blessings I have received from him by giving me this kingdom and that by rendering his temple as complete as I am able. So in other words, it's up to me, I'll do it right, because God has made me such and such. This, of course, is Herod the Great, of whom it is written in the Gospel of Matthew. He sent the Magi back to Bethlehem to worship him, or to make sure he dies, and so Jesus, Jesus flees to Egypt. Yes, it's that Herod who builds the temple that is around during Jesus' time. And the wailing wall that is still in Jerusalem today is of Herod's construction. Karl Reiner said, Catholic theologian, in the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, we come to understand that here in this life, all symphonies remain unfinished. 
it's really awesome when the Kings win and Sacramento's super happy to have once again a playoff contender and you know isn't it great to go watch the Kings but never quite never quite makes it even if they win well then you want to win again and never quite achieves never quite attains all symphonies left unfinished they have the beam it's great to watch that beam in the sky Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, what building, what ceremony, what offering, what political arrangement will finally be found sufficient? From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from top, from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion... And those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Jesus talked about the temple and said, tear it down and in three days I'll raise it up. Everyone thought they were talking about Herod's temple. He was talking about his body. His body would become the new temple. His body sacrificed on Calvary. Jesus would become the beam that connects heaven and earth. Now we wait for heaven and earth to reunite. And every time I see the beam now, I'm probably going to think about this sermon and think, yeah, even the Sacramento Kings. For them, it kind of means, you know, the God giving favor on them to win a championship and then maybe another. But it's a little symbol to connect heaven and earth. Advent is about waiting, praying, hoping, and beginning to receive what has been promised. He has been given, and he keeps on giving. He will not stop until he completes what he began. Amen.